talk about it right here. We're gonna talk about everything you like. I'ma make it real, real clear. It's today talks right here. We're gonna talk about it right here. I'ma talk about everything you like. I'ma make it real, real clear. Cause it's today talk. And I'ma talk about it. Yeah, cause it's today talk. And I'ma talk about it. And welcome to the Tanae Talks podcast, the podcast where you come to laugh and learn, the podcast that also educates and entertains. Today's show is brought to you by 810 Taco Seasoning. 810 Taco Seasoning is packed with nine delicious flavors that are high in flavor and low in sodium. Remember, 810 Taco Seasoning is made for tacos, but delicious on everything. So you can put it on your meats, your treats, or whatever, and you'll be sure to spice up your Taco Tuesday nights. Visit 810tacos.com. That's 810tacos.com. Use code Tanae Talks Tacos and you'll receive free shipping off all orders over $20. Today, I have a wonderful guest joining me today. You can see I'm smiling from ear to ear from east to west because I have a fantastic guest on the show today. She is the author of the book, Talking Black Girl. Mm-hmm. And y'all know I'm all about uplifting black women and black girls and her journey and her story is just phenomenal. I'm going to give you a little brief on her and she's going to tell you the rest. But Dan- her name is Danielle Prescott, not to be a uh, uh, thinking Prescott is Prescott with a D. And Danielle is a 15-year veteran in the beauty and fashion industry. And she is a graduate of NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which means she specialized her degree in all things fashion. She is the fashion guru. She's worked mm-hmm. at some of your favorite brands, including Vogue. And most recently, she was the style director of BET. So without further ado, welcome, Ms. Danielle Prescott. Hi. Hello. Pardon me? Thanks for having me. Oh, it is such a pleasure (laughs) because this book is like black, it's like black girl magic, black girl just all things cool because you went through quite a journey, you know, with your identity and, you know, blackness and whiteness and white supremacy and all those things. But at the end of the day, you are a beautiful black queen and we're going to get into it. So tell my audience, for those who don't know you a little bit about your background and how you got into the fashion industry. Sure. Um, I, had always really loved magazines. I mean, I loved reading everything. And so magazines were like a big form of escapism for me. And I just thought that, wow, I can't believe that this exists. Like they would give advice, which I thought I was like, I was really searching for a lot of things in my youth. So I loved like how sure, you know, the words seemed within magazines. There was a lot of research involved when they reported articles and the imagery was also so beautiful. And so I lost myself in those pages a lot. And I, um, I, I wanted to work in a magazine because I wanted to be a writer. And um, I didn't know that there were other people responsible for 
the other things that were in a magazine besides the words. And so when I got my first internship, that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there's a whole photo department and there's a features department and there's a fashion department and there's a beauty department and there's an art department. And there's so many different, you know, ways to contribute to like making this thing happen. Um, and so I, when I got my first internship, I was 18 years old and um, I was reporting to the executive editor and she would give me tasks and I would finish them so early and so quickly because I was so passionate and, it, <laughs> yes. and um, I didn't realize that like some of it was busy work. Like they were just like, please get out of our faces so we can actually do work that you can't help with. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, the fashion closet always seemed really busy and like they needed extra hands. So I just started like volunteering to help in there. And turns out they actually did need help. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's how I found out that, you know, people are responsible for putting these outfits together and someone decides what the person on the cover wears and also what the models wear. So um, that is how I discovered that that was a career path and I wanted to go down it. And then I swung back around full circle and decided, I'm just kidding, I want to write again. <laughs> And and that's what led to the token black girl book because you missed the the joy and thrill of writing. When you were growing up, what were some of your favorite magazines? I read everything and anything. Um, when I was like a very young kid, it was like YM was a big one that I really mm -hmm. liked. Um, and then Teen Vogue came out, and I put this in the book. I think in two thousand. Two or three was the first issue. I think um, it was L2. And I only know that because my grandma got me a subscription mm -hmm. and I was in love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a real, that was a really big one. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, I started graduating to reading Vogue and Marie Claire and L and InStyle um, and even some international magazines like ID. Um so I would read anything I could get my hands on. <laughs> yeah. What I loved also about Teen Vogue is that they also had real articles in there about like things that girls or women across the globe were going through and not just fashion and beauty. They would just have like articles about like world events. So I really appreciated that because I was also like a bookworm. So I read everything, Teen Vogue, Teen Mag, Jet ebony essence, you know, the whole nine. Um, so, you know, before we go into more questions, the book is called Token Black Girl, but for my reader, my listeners out there who might not know what a token black girl is or a token black girl per, uh, person is, Danielle, how would you define token black girl or token black? How would you define that? Um, I think it's complex because it can, you can be tokenized on like an individual level, but then also on an institutional level. And so I would say at the institutional level, tokenization like serves as a signal to external parties that you are an accepting institution, that everybody has a place at your institution, except that there's never usually more than one person of color and whatever that might be. So you can have a token brown girl, a token Latinx girl. You can have 
um, a token Asian girl, you can have a token black girl, but it's only when, you know, that identity becomes your only trait and characteristic that is valuable to the institution that it is problematic. And also that you're usually, like I said, the only one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on an individual level, it also works similarly, but usually it's demonstrating that there is a power dynamic that the tokenized person doesn't have access to. Mm -hmm. So it's that their identity becomes what uh, is useful in the group setting to signal like, hey, we're accepting of people, like we're not racist. However, your acceptance is usually predicated upon you being able to assimilate to the dominant culture, which Mm -hmm. is usually whiteness. True indeed. Kendra Payne wrote an article called Grew Up as the Token Black Kid um, and Finding Your Voice. And she defines the token black person as being the person, the only, the only insert whatever to that in a sea full of white people. So you're the only, and then you're plucked out to be, you know, tokenized in that sense. And as you said, um, the dominant culture is what rules that particular area. And then you have to follow that. You going outside of that norm no longer makes you the token then when you go outside of the norm that has been systemically placed there, then you could uh, particularly become an enemy of the state or mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. an enemy against what those norms are if, if you try to go against it. Yeah, um, they call that trajectory pet to threat. So mm-hmm. when you are the pet, it is like you behave in the way that is um, acceptable that people um, it's expected that, you know, it's not, it's not threatening. And then if you stray from that behavior, you all of a sudden become a threat. True indeed. Pet to threat. Whew. That's one. That's one that I've seen that materialize <laughs> in my own eyes, in of my course. own experience of, you know, going for, from a uh, pet to threat. And I like uh, Chesley Ramsey she she used to have a thing that's uh, a little YouTube short that said stuff white white people say or stuff black girls say stuff white girls say mm-hmm. and she used to have a little bit that said not to sound racist and then it was preceded by something that was absolutely racist oh, yeah. and, and so because of that it's like if you go along with it and you laugh and you don't stop it right there and say hey that you know that actually was racist immediately that transition from pet to threat can happen because it's like, what are you doing? Why are you questioning me? Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Why are you making me feel uncomfortable? Although mm-hmm. they spent 10 minutes making you feel uncomfortable. Totally. Um, so n- my number one question is, what inspired you to write Token Black Girl? I know you mentioned it in the book, but there are some people who haven't read the book. And I really want them to read the book because your story, your path is just very, it's its cool. And I love that you became enlightened on your path. You could have stayed essentially and, and not to you know disrespect you in any way, but you could have stayed the pet because you were the pet in a, a long time in your life, particularly your childhood and in your teens. But yeah. then the light bulb clicked for you and you were like, hey, no, you know, a, a threat to 
to them is a threat to me. How you're perceiving them is how you're perceiving me. So what inspired you to write the book and for that light bulb to kind of click for you? I think that, you know, everyone's on their own individual journeys. Um, and for me, I had really been working with my therapist on exploring what self-love meant and self-care. And because I had worked in the fashion and beauty industries, um, both of those terms had been like extremely commodified. So it's like, if you want to show yourself love, like buy yourself flowers, like, right. That's like the number one song in America right now, right? <laughs> flowers. And it's like, I can buy my own flowers. So I mean, I, and I developed this habit that was that I would buy my own flowers and I would arrange them in my house every single week. I was spending like, I don't even know, like $50 or more a week on fresh flowers. It was oh, so that's, a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. And I'm like, okay, I don't really feel any better. And I didn't, I really couldn't understand what was making me not have this mythical self-love that my therapist was insisting I needed. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that was because of the messaging that I like received in my professional life that like, if you go on vacation, that's self-love. If you, you know, go to yoga class, that's self-love. If you mm -hmm. buy yourself the shoes, that's self-love. And like, it's not, it has nothing to do with that. But because they had constructed this image of myself, that was like, so, um, so predicated on like what I owned, what I had, um, where, where I worked, look, the jobs that I occupied. So, um, I was like, I don't know why I still don't love myself. And so, uh, once I started like peeling back the layers, a lot of it had to do with like media reception, Mm -hmm. um, and how affected I was by like certain media. And I was like, yeah, but okay. Am I seeing enough black love interests? Am I seeing enough people who look like me celebrated um, as special as for who they are and not for like what they contribute to an institution? Mm -hmm. uh, and I wasn't really, and I was like, okay, so maybe I can like work backwards and see where some of this started. And I ended up at like white supremacy. That's where all of it started. Right. And, mm -hmm. and me not understanding that. Right. And like also being a child in a system that I truly did not understand. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think I went through a lot. I had to like do a lot of like self forgiveness as well. Um, mm -hmm. I had to forgive myself for the things that I did not know and like the things I didn't know how to say or communicate and mm -hmm. feelings I didn't know how to communicate because that's all also part of the self-love process. Like you can't have self-love without self-forgiveness as well. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, that's how I ended up writing the book. That is so good. I love that you said that you had to forgive yourself for what you didn't know because once you came into the know of certain things, like again, the white supremacy saying that this particular body size is the normal body size or this type of skin or this, you know, colorism getting on the spectrum, the fair skin to the darker skin, what is best? And you're like, well, I subscribe to these things. And I thought that they were 
the end all be all, the cat's meow. So you like had to go back and tell your to forgive yourself to say, hey, I was perpetuating the same things that was causing someone else not to love themselves. Well, yeah. And I think that what most people don't understand is just how pervasive white supremacy is and that it touches every single part of your life. Mm -hmm. And it is just kind of like parroted back to people. So for example, um, the obesity scale, right, is Mm -hmm. based on a study that was done for white men in Europe. And never again replicated for any other race, any other (laughs) place. But it is what the medical field uses to determine, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. health for people. And it's like, it still affects everybody to this day. So I recently went to the doctor and she was like, oh, well, you are chronically obese. And I was like, but why would I be obese? Yeah. Um, And I'm like, and my doctor's a black woman, right? Mm -hmm. 10 years of medical school. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at her and she's looking at me and I'm like, well, I can't believe we're in this theater where like this cloud of white supremacy is still between us. Mm-hmm. I forget what the, the test is. Oh, anyway, there's this test where um, it's a feminist test to uh, mm-hmm. demonstrate that the patriarchy is also always present. Permeated in the fabric of everything. Yeah. yeah. So even when we are two women having a conversation, patriarchy is still here. And that is like also how racism functions as well. And without realizing it, you know, we are interacting with it on a daily basis, sometimes an hourly basis. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really requires like so much unpacking. Um, And yeah, if you are educated in a certain way, if you interact with people in a certain way like that, it might never come up. Like there are, there are so many forces right now, even mm-hmm. dedicated to making sure people never know mm-hmm. these words ever, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't want to talk about it and they don't want it out there. Um, and so you almost have to like fight to figure out this information and yeah. that's also really hard and not everyone does that either. So um, you have to forgive yourself for like, mm-hmm. the fact that, like this system is working on you completely outside of your control. Completely. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's something that my husband and I talk about often. He is a history teacher. He, um, he teaches U.S. history, African-American history as well. And he was uh, educated uh, in African psychology as well. So he's always looking on how white supremacy affects us. And and you brought a very real example of how you could have a black doctor talking to a black patient and then the overarching is white supremacy with this. And I was just having that conversation recently. It's like every, every couple of months we're having these conversations. There's a new rest in peace or a hashtag and most recently Tyree Nichols. God bless the dead. And, you know, now the scuttlebutt is, well, he was beat by, you know, black cops. Black cops beat him. So it's black on black crime. And it's like, okay, no, because they work, they're agents of the state and the history of policing is against black human beings. They were just carrying out another act of white supremacy. It's just like the miseducation of the Negro. If I've been telling you to go to the back door, I no longer have to tell you to go to the back door anymore. You're going to do it 
instantaneously. It's innate. It's in you. So they're just carrying out the act that says, hey, black people that look like this, when we're all wearing blue, our targets are black people. So that's who you target. So to your point, yes, they're carrying out white supremacy and you have to literally deprogram yourself to get over it. Yes. And it has to be like intentional because again, like it's not going to be given to you at school. Mm -mm. Um, It's not going to be given to you at work. Mm -hmm. Like it is something that you are going to have to seek out on your own. And that's also really unfortunate too, because I think that one of the unfair things about white supremacy is that, you know, it's that black people have this innate knowledge. And I'm like, we're drinking the same poison water well that you are. You know, it's like, we don't know necessarily any better. We can talk amongst ourselves, but Mm -hmm. like, I was like, it needs to be something that is so normalized. Mm -hmm. Like that's just what we're learning. Just like when you tell a baby their ABCs, right? Like these things are like, we've all agreed that this is what kids say two plus two equals four. Yeah. Right. Um, but if you ask, I mean, there's tons of like TikTok videos. Like if you ask a, a kid being like, can you name three countries in Africa? And they're a white kid. They can't. And sometimes in some of these schools, black kids can't either. Yeah. Right? Because they're not, they're not taught. It, they're it's being not the same at the same place. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting, they're being indoctrinated in public schools In public schools, their mission is to create workers, which fuels capitalism, which fuels uh, classism, which yeah. fuels racism. And it, get, it gets so deep. It's so deep. <laughs> and it can go, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And and people, you, you had a quote in your book just to that point. And you says, you say, which one is it? Oh, yes. This is this is a great quote. You say when black people bring up racism in this context, right, even in the context that we're speaking about it now, how it plays a role in just ignorance of all the races, Mm -hmm. um, they are told that they are being paranoid or they need to lighten up or worse still that not everything is about race. So instead, we just absorb all that negativity. We swallow it and smile at it. Lavishly decorated at lavishly decorated dinner tables with people who have racist conversations privately while publicly standing for equality. And blown away because right now we're in a war in education about CRT, critical race theory, which has been around for a long time, but now for some reason it is just blown up and it's in a way that says, hey, we want to keep it cute. We want to say diversity. We want to pluck out the token black girl, the token Latinx girl, the token Asian girl and say, hey, we've met our quota and, and throw in a little LGBTQ plus. <laughs> and we want to say we met our quota. But when we start to have those real deepening conversations, it's like, hey, you're you're taking this a little too far and we want to keep it on on the sur- a surface level. And, and, you know, and that is the hardship that we as the tokens, sometimes we're forced in, into the token black person role where we have to kind of swallow, swallow it um, for our livelihood so that we can have a place to work, so that we're not stirring up the pot, so that we're not looked at as crazy, <laughs> even though it's the truth. 
I know. And that's, what's really weird to like know these things, but then to be convinced, you know, one thing that I think racism does or white supremacy does is like convince you not to trust yourself Mm. that I really, and that's why there's so much external research infused with the memoir part of my book. Cause I was like, Mm -hmm. I, I can't stand on just people saying, yeah, that's exactly what happened. They, they won't, they won't trust me. And then they'll convince me to not trust me. Mm-hmm. That's really dangerous. So I was like, okay, well, since I do know this is true, I will also demonstrate these concepts by showing what happened to other people, mm-hmm. other industries across the world. Yeah. Um, so that you understand that it's not just something I'm saying. Right. And it's not just an isolated incident. It is prevalent. And I want to just thank you, Danielle, for your bravery, because you were brave enough to speak about this where I don't I don't know if you mentioned this in the book, but I'll ask you did when before you published this book, did people say this is going to be career suicide? Why are you doing this? Why are you putting it on blast? You know, Um, no, but only because I had already career suicided myself. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, so I left mainstream women's publications in 2016 and I went to work at BET Mm -hmm. and I detail this in the book, but the transition from working in mainstream media to like BET just further highlighted the racism of the industry because like all of a sudden, like, certain access that I always had was like revoked or changed. Yeah. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I remember that part. <laughs> I remember. Right. I'm like, I, I, just, I was just at this brunch last, last year. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was very outspoken then about mm-hmm. racism um, and how it was affecting me and, and my ability to do my job. Like, and I'm like, and, and unfortunately, like even working at a black brand, like did not save me from having to interact with racism because um, we are having to fight now for access and for talent Mm -hmm. and for opportunities that like I was just given blindly when I worked Mm -hmm. at um, mainstream publication. So I had already been quite annoying to people, I guess I would say many years. Um, So yeah, I don't think that it's something that the book was the thing that was the career suicide. I was like, I think that happened. Yeah, (laughs) that's, that's true. Uh, What prevalent myths um, and truths are associated with being a token black girl that you would say? I think what's, what's really challenging about being the token black girl is that there are myths on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are a black person who occupies a white space, you have to deal with like the myths and pre-assumptions of white community. And then you also have to simultaneously deal with the myths and pre-assumptions of the black community. Mm So um, I don't know, like people like say just really insensitive stuff all the time. and I think I, I witnessed it a lot when the Megan and Harry documentary came out mm-hmm. uh, 
because Meghan Markle said something like, yeah, like I, I never really had to think about it. Like I never had to think about my race and how it affected me. And people were just like, that is so impossible. I don't understand. Like, <laughs> like you know, I was like, I actually think it's very possible. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, first of all, I don't un understand like what, to what benefit would she be lying about this at this point? Mm -hmm. That really makes sense. But mm -hmm. even if we're like going to like accept it as like partially true, I'm like, there was still a world in like the nineties and like two thousands where simply like the presence of blackness was enough to be like, Oh, racism is done. I mean, it happened mm -hmm. when Obama was elected. Oh, racism is over. Mm -hmm. This, this quote unquote post-racial America, which is so false. <laughs> it's so false. So like, we're good now. And, and I also think that it, it was so many discussions that made people uncomfortable. And one of the things you're trained to do as a tokenized person of color is just not talk about it because it makes people uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. You know these things are true or like happening, but you can't say that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and because it's not safe for you. Mm -hmm. And so you just learn to be really quiet about things. And that makes the Black community be like, oh, you're a sellout, X, X, Y, and Z. Like, you know, I even get a lot of criticism. People are like, you just started talking about this in 2020. I can't believe that. And I'm like, would you like to see countless emails that I sent people that were just ignored or I would reject stories. People would pitch things to me and I would say, I cannot on good conscience feature this on a mm -hmm. black website because all of your models are white and like mm -hmm. people were ignoring me. Um, and so I'm like, I was fighting these fights, just not out there. Yeah. You. And that's what's often very difficult is like you're fighting invisible battles, but you have such a visible position so everyone can see you but they don't know what it is you're really going through mm -hmm. and that's really difficult. I mentioned this a, a few months ago when talking with a friend that people feel like fighting racism or white supremacy is marching like Dr. King or, you know, or on the, you know, like mega ever. It's like they, they, they expect it to be on a, a huge civil rights level as opposed to understanding that the system itself affects down lower than that, you know, at the grocery store. You know, if you're a cashier and you're working with a racist white cashier or yeah. in your position, you know, you're, you're like, I'm behind the scenes, but I'm also in front of the scenes. I'm fighting battles that may not be blown up on a billboard, but yet there was a battle being fought. And so I think that people need to understand that, that the battles, there are many, many battles, not just the, the big war all the time. It's the many battles that you have to fight daily so that the people that come after you don't have a big of a war. And we can look at our own hist his history as shared Black people, shared Black history, that the, that the big, big, big wars have been fought for us. Um, but we still, there's still many more battles to fight because it hasn't ended and it's still very much prevalent. Yeah. Um, what are the three lessons that you have learned navigating uh, mainstream white world and black America since confronting your position as a token black girl? Uh, well, it's, it's much preferred that you're quiet. <laughs> mm. 
Um, and that's, it's a really hard lesson to learn too, because it's almost like directly antithetical to the like public facing messages that like institutions want to share. Um, but they just don't want you to really speak about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really hard. <laughs> um, I would also say that the, the best thing that you can do is educate yourself. And of course, like sometimes that can feel like additional labor, but um, you can't take away you can't ever take that away. Like you can't take away the fact that I know things and I'm like, I can't unknow them now. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's really important. Um, And I would also say like finding community is really important um, and it's worth it to do that. I think because of the way that I grew up, I was really intimidated by forming black female friendships. Like, and I didn't really have any until adulthood. Um, And so I have to say that like, those are the friendships and that's the community that has like saved me the most. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. I love that. Um, I know we both have to go. um, So I want to end on a quote and how you feel about this quote. Again, Kendra Payne wrote an article called Grew Up as the Token Black Kid. Here's how to reactivate your voice. And one of the things that happens with the token is that it's saying that 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 token Black kid's Black experience is less than you know, quote unquote, like a hood black person. And so she she's quoted saying um, every experience is a black experience unless it is anti-black. So no matter how privileged you grew up or how impoverished you grew up or whatever, everything in between, that experience is a black experience unless it is anti-black. And what would you say to that quote? I totally agree. And um I think that like more than anything, what we fight in races when we fight racism is the fight for our own humanity mm-hmm. and the fight for the spectrum of that. And so like, for example, when white people try to represent themselves in the media, they understand that they can have succession on the air same time as hillbilly elegy and we don't think that's more white that's less white yeah we understand that they can have a breadth of experiences but it is only for other cultures that are not white that we try Mm -hmm. to flatten that experience and say no this is the only one that you can have Mm -hmm. that's really unfair because it's dehumanizing um and you can have many experiences but yes you have to be very careful that when you are having those many experiences they are not anti-black because like what happens to tokenized children and some to some degree adults mm-hmm. is that they begin to kind of like parrot the things that like white people or like white supremacy thinks about their own community which is essentially anti-black or, um, you know, discriminatory if you're from another race. So it's important to like understand that like we cannot do that either. 
Yeah. Um, that, but like, yes, we should celebrate like all kinds of experiences and like let kids do whatever they want to do. I would hate it when people would be like, black people don't ski. You're like, yes, we do. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. You know how many how many times people, black people don't play golf? Yeah, until there's Tiger Woods. Black people don't play tennis mm-hmm. until there's the Williams sisters. Like, and mm-hmm. we were playing golf and tennis and skiing and riding horses and doing all of that stuff. All the things, but when the dominant culture doesn't present that as something that we do, then we're programmed to think that that is what the others do and not what we do. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it's very important to like then not become that tokenized person who's the only one and then emphasize like how different you are than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Not that either. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and also before we go, why should people go out and purchase Token Black Girl? I mean, I've been shouting it on the rafters that they should go purchase it. <laughs> It is a great read. Your journey, your evolution, your understanding, um, your mistreatment, your uh, empowerment, everything that you went through to get to the Danielle that we see today is why I say that they should get this book. But why do you think that they should get this book? Well, there's so many reasons. Uh, first, it's beautiful and it looks great in your house. It's bright pink. It has like a holographic element to it. The hardcover does. It's got a Gabrielle Union blurb on the cover, which is yes. Um, secondly, because of the royalty text. She's a fashion guru, guys. So she had to tell you about the aesthetics because yes. it's so it's right. Yeah. Secondly, because I'll get royalty checks. And I, <laughs> and we want this Black sister to get paid. Okay. Yes. And thirdly, because um, when books like this do well, it opens up opportunities for other people to be able to tell their stories. So much of like why it's very difficult for Black authors to get book deals, to get promotional opportunities um, to get access to things is because they say, oh, people won't read that. They won't buy it. It won't sell. And so therefore these publishing houses won't buy their books. And that means that we are not seeing enough diversity in publishing. And it's a cycle that keeps going around. And the only way to break this cycle is to prove hey, that is something we want to read. That is something we want to see, right? Like something like Black Panther really proved that as well. Marvel was very content just having the white superheroes for a very long time. And when Black Panther shattered box office records, they said, oh, we have to pay attention. This audience not only can appeal to itself, like we are appealing directly to the Black community, but it has wider appeal as well. And that is proof of concept. So- want to do some good (laughs) (laughs) if you want to do some good to the black race (laughs) then y'all need to go out and get token black girl by danielle prescott she is as you can see she is well spoken and she is also well written it'll Mm -hmm. make you laugh there were times when i was mad at her i was mad at you a few times danielle that's okay i was not but i forgave you (laughs) but you know I had to be really honest because I was like it's not worth it to like take all that stuff out that I would if I Mm -hmm. like was like oh no people aren't gonna like this about me Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not trying to be liked necessarily I'm trying to be truthful Mm -hmm. you know you have to say like even the ugly stuff sometimes 
Right. And that's what, to me, that's what sells the raw authenticity of you. Like I said, you know, I be, I get really into books. I'm a nerd yeah. for real. <laughs> so like I said, there were points when I was upset, but there was, there was the other part where I had to understand how you got to where you got. And so it, it was easy. And I think that's, that's what we need in, in our community to continue to have these nuanced conversations, to continue to understand others' nuanced experiences. Um, just understanding that I grew up in Michigan and you grew up New York, Connecticut, that's going to just be a completely different experience in itself. And so we should not um, be angry with one another, but just try to develop some understanding and embrace those differences. Yeah. So again, thank you for being a guest on today's show. Thank you for sharing um, your knowledge in your book. Thank you for your insight. And y'all make sure y'all go to Amazon.com, put in Token Black Girl by Danielle Prescott, and make sure you order that book today. You will not be disappointed. Any last remarks, Miss Danielle? No, thank you so much for having me and being so patient with scheduling. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much.